Welcome to A Happy Place. This is the Live Happy Now podcast. Hello, I'm your host, J.R. Houston. Glad you are making us a part of your week, wherever you are in the world. Also want to thank our partner, Live Happy Magazine. Uh, The new issue is available now. Jillian Michaels on the front. All kinds of great information in there for you. We will have more on that coming up in just a moment. Want to thank our other partner, Life Reimagined. Their website, lifereimagined.org slash happy. It's got all kinds of things for you to try out as you make that journey toward your peak happiness as you awaken to the power of happiness, so do your dreams. So what's next? Well, find out more at lifereimagined.org slash happy. Now, this podcast is related to the 90 Days to a Happier You piece that ran in the February 2016 issue of Live Happy Magazine, where we partnered with our top experts to help coach five members of our Live Happy team on how to make choices that will build good habits and help them lead more fulfilling lives. And through this series, we tackle topics like improving communication with others, managing negative thinking, overcoming chronic insomnia, setting career goals, and learning to unplug from work, which certainly is something that we've all had issues with as Deborah Heiss joins us. The uh, you've got so many titles in front of you; it'll will take up all twenty minutes to get there. Uh, but today, in this particular uh, edition, we're talking about improving communication with others. And in the article that that ran in the magazine, specifically Susan Kane, who is our contributing editor, uh, was dealing with this issue. What what about her made her perfect for this particular issue? Well, as we all know um, from reading Live Happy magazine or just being exposed to uh, the science behind happiness, creating connection and having good relationships with the people around you and the people in your family and the people you love is one of the keys to living a happier, a happy, fulfilling life. Well, Susan happens to have a teenage daughter, and I think most of us know that having teenagers in the house is not necessarily all, always conducive to positive communication. Mm. So she volunteered to be the subject of the, of the communication um, habits building uh, uh, you know, habits, habits building, communication habits building, building good, uh, good communication because of her relationship with her teenage daughter. And I think it's very bold of her, and I'm interested to see what her teenage daughter says when she reads the piece. <laughs> <laughs> there might be some communication there happening afterwards. But I do also want to make sure everybody knows that um, even if you didn't read the article, uh, in this podcast, there's some really interesting information that you can take away. Yeah, our Live Happy Science editor, Paula Phelps, is talking with Michelle Gravel, a consultant with Triad Consulting. She works with authors of best-selling books like Difficult Conversations, How to Discuss What Matters Most, and uh, Thanks for the Feedback, the Science and Art of Receiving Feedback Well. And Michelle also facilitates executive education programs at the Harvard Negotiation Institute and Duke Corporate Education. So let's listen in on this conversation and see what we can learn about improving our communication. Well, Michelle, we know that communication is so important both at home and in the workplace, but it's also the source of a lot of misunderstandings. So Mm. can you tell us what the number one mistake we make when it comes to effective communication? Yeah, so uh, Paula, I think the best way to describe that is it's the voice in our head. (laughs) And what I mean by that is, all of us have a voice in our head all the time. And many times it says things like, oh, I really like this person I'm talking to and this conversation is going really well and happy to be here having this discussion with them. And many times, particularly when we're talking with family members or kids or parents, the voice in our head sounds something like this, like, oh, I can't believe I'm having this conversation again. Why don't they ever do what I tell them to do? Here we are the 14th time I've said this to them and they're not doing what I told them and yada, yada, yada. And so it's that rambly, sort of almost vicious voice in our head that gets in the way of us being able to have 
really clear, effective communications because that voice has a story, right? We have a story about the person we're talking to. And if we're a parent and we're talking to our child, the story might be, oh, I'm so frustrated with my son or my daughter. Why don't they ever do what I tell them to do? And I wish they would do this differently. And so it's that story that really gets in the way. And part of the challenge of any relationship is changing the story in our head. First being aware of what that story is and then being willing and able to change it and make it make a better story because that story, whether it's good or bad, leaks into the conversation. So in in a sense, we're just talking about mindfulness and staying like we need to stay focused on what this conversation is, not bring the backstory with us. Is that correct? Well, yes, definitely. It's mindfulness is absolutely part of it. There's several different things going on in this. You know, some people call it the inner critic. Some people call it the we call it the internal voice. Some people call it the monkey mind. And there's a message in there. There's a message around our own personal identity. So, for instance, you know, we if we're in the middle of a tough conversation, we might be thinking to ourselves, "Oh my goodness, why why can't I do this better? Why does this keep happening? What is?" what does this conversation say about me that I can't seem to get it right? You know, what does this say about me as a parent or as a spouse? You know, how, how does this make me feel? So there's this whole component of sort of this identity story that's part of the story in our head. There's also strong feelings. You know, we have strong feelings. The person we're talking to has strong feelings and that makes up part of the story as well. Um, So, so, Mindfulness is part of it, but it's also having a better understanding of what are the what is that voice in our head trying to tell us, and can we give it a different voice? So, in the way I think about mindfulness is simply um, being aware that I have that sort of inner chatter and kind of quieting it down. But one of the things we know is it's really hard to quiet that internal voice unless we actually know what it's trying to tell us. And once we really take a deeper dive into understanding what that inner voice is trying to tell us, then it's easier to quiet it down and consciously sort of put a different voice in our head. It's like switching tapes, more or less. It's one thing to just turn the volume down on the old tape. It's a whole different skill set to insert a new tape. And I think particularly as as parents, you, you know, with our kids, really with anybody in our life, it's one of the most masterful, significant, important things you can do is to work hard on creating a new story about the person you're talking to. And that has to be done not during the conversation. That's something you need to work on before you have a conversation and in the aftermath of a heated conversation work on. Is that correct? Um, you bet. It's hard to switch those gears when you're in an emotional state of conversation. Absolutely. It's a, it really is a lifelong practice. Um, just as you said, like mindfulness, um, it's really, it's a very conscious way to prepare for going into a conversation. Again, whether it's with your teenager or your, your mother-in-law or whoever it might be with, like, <clears throat> part of the, the way we like to help people get get better at their conversations is you first need to have a little conversation with yourself and say, okay, so what's the frame of mind I'm going into this conversation with? 
and doing that, even if it's only five minutes, five minutes of paying attention to that can be really, really helpful um, and can make all the difference in the world in a conversation. And how is that going to help it be more productive? Because a lot of times we have conversations and they don't really move along. We, we kind of stay in the same little whirlwind and, and don't make any progress. Uh, yeah. so how do you get something that, to turn it into a more productive conversation? Great question. So part of what's in our story in our head about the person we're talking to. So, so let's say, for instance, I might be talking to my sister or brother or something, and I might have a story in my head that, you know what, if they would just simply stop doing the thing that they're doing, like if they would just stop acting the way they're acting, then I'll stop being upset. And so it's as if we are blaming them for their behavior, like just stop being so cantankerous or sarcastic or whatever the the issue is. And and yet, that's an incredibly disempowering frame of mind to have. So if I'm blaming somebody for making me feel the way I'm feeling, well, then I'm sort of at their mercy. I'm waiting around for them to change before I can choose a different way of being. And it's much more empowering to say, you know what, I'm responsible for the way I'm feeling, regardless of what my teenager does, regardless of what my sister or brother or somebody else does. I'm responsible for the way I'm feeling and how can I work with myself so that I am not laying blame on this other person, that I can actually take ownership and responsibility for something that I'm doing or have done. And that behavior right there, that mindset, that skill set of being able to say, you know what, here's, here's something that I own up to. Here's, something I take responsibility for. I realized that in our last conversation, I, I said something that may have impacted you in a negative way. Well, that's a very de-escalating kind of thing to do in a conversation. First of all, it helps the other person to realize that you're actually aware of your own behavior, and it also points to the fact that you're also aware of how your behavior might have impacted them. And so... In order to do that, you first have to have enough self-awareness and, you know, pay attention to your own behavior enough to say, ah, okay, if I had not done X, then they wouldn't have gotten defensive or upset. So let me go actually back to that person and own up for the fact that I did X, Y, or Z. So all that needs to happen in our own head first before we go into the conversation. And once we can sort of look at ourselves honestly in the mirror and kind of own up to what our part in the situation is, then it gives us much more leverage in the conversation to say, you know what, this is not all your fault, of course. Like, here's some things that I I see I've done as well. So that pre-work, that mental inner pre-work is what helps us to be much more skillful and less emotional, less blaming, less attacking in the conversation. And that's interesting because a lot of times we're going to think, well, if I take responsibility or if I own up to this, then I become the vulnerable one. And, mm. you know, we feel like we're giving them the upper hand and we don't necessarily want to do that. So can you kind of address how you, you work through that mental dance of realizing yeah. that admitting you're wrong doesn't mean you're giving the other person power? It's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a catch-22, right? We have this fear that, if I take responsibility for something I did, then the other person is going to say, well, yeah, it's high time because let me tell you what else you did. <laughs> and they will, 
they will use it a little bit as permission to unload their laundry list of all the other things that we've done. Well, to some extent, that actually might be helpful because if, in fact, we are doing things that are disappointing or frustrating the other person, it's actually good that we know that because then we have more information and we can choose to stop doing those things or we at least understand what we might be doing that's making it difficult for the other person to be in relationship with us. So on one hand, yes, it could be that when you say, here's what I take responsibility for, they might say, well, let me give you 10 other things you should be thinking about. <laughs> but mo most of the time what we find is that it actually models the behavior that then allows the other person to say, well, you know what, I really appreciate you saying that, Michelle, because I realize, you know, here's something that I've done, too, that may have impacted you in not such a great way. And then you could have a much more honest conversation about what's really going on. And so, yes, there is no question. There's a, a little bit of a risk that someone could say, yeah, you're right, you did really mess that up, and let's talk about it. And that, that could very well happen, but most of the time what we see is it's an incredibly de-escalating move to make in a conversation. If you own your responsibility first, it takes the other person by surprise because they're all geared up. They're ready to let you have it. But if you let yourself have it first, then it disarms them. And they're like, oh, oh, okay, well then what else should we talk about? <laughs> so it, it presents a a much less defensive type conversation. Excellent. Excellent. That's yeah. something you can use at home or at work. I can Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Now now one of the things that you talk about is the importance of inquiry and empathy. Can you explain mm. to us what that is? So I could probably talk about inquiry and empathy and, you know, till the cows come home. <laughs> <laughs> so I you know, I think particularly well, there's just there's so many applications for inquiry. So, you know, I know that we're sort of focusing on parent-teenager type relationships in this particular podcast. And so I think one of the dangers, I remember when my son was a teenager, it's very tempting to sort of play that parent card. You know, I'm older, I'm wiser, I'm the adult, you're the kid, let me tell you how to do it, let me tell you what to do. And we get into this trap of tell, tell, tell. Let me tell you how to do it, let me tell you what I want, blah, 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 blah. And we sort of forget that our teenager, whatever age they are, is actually their own person. And it's really disrespectful in all kinds of ways to do all the telling and none of the asking. And so part of my coaching and counseling and advice to people is get curious, get curious, get curious, right? Because there's always something you're missing. Yes, of course, you're the parent. Yes, of course, you need to set boundaries and, you know, make sure that your child is safe and that they understand reasonable consequences. But beyond all of that, they have a perspective. They have missing information. And if all we are doing is telling them, then we're, we're not even taking the opportunity to get to know them. And so part of my coaching with people is to say, you know what? Find out what you're missing. Ask your child or your, again, like whoever you're talking to, what am I missing? How do you see this differently? What's your perspective? What do you really want me to know about this situation? And one of the most powerful questions I think we can ask is, what does that mean to you? Because when someone says something to you, so when your teenager blurts something out or when your spouse shares something with you, 
they share that thing because it's important to them. People don't share things that are unimportant. They share the important stuff. And if you can pause in the conversation and say, hmm, what does that mean to you when you say that, you know, your friend doesn't want to hang out with you after school? Or what does that mean to you when your teacher gives you a, you know, a bad remark on your paper, like whatever it is that they're upset about. When you say, what does that mean to you? Then you get to the heart of the matter. And it's a, it's a way to build trust in relationships. Inquiry and curiosity is a way to let go of your own story for a minute and find out a little bit more about the story that that person has about you. Um, it's also an incredibly respectful thing. I mean, all of us know that you know, we choose our best friends and, and the people that we like to hang out with because we feel good when we're with them. And often that's because they accept us, they respect us, they like being with us, and so in turn, we like being with them. And I think we, we forget that with our kids, that, you know, we need to sort of raise their status as well. We need to respect their differences, their opinions, and get curious about who who they are inside of their their teenager, adolescent angst, we need to find out, like, what else is going on in there that would be helpful for us to know. And they can be a whole different ball game, um, just in the sense that they might not, one day they might want to talk to you, and the next day they might not. Um, yeah. So how does a parent deal with that situation? Because it's not, it's a moving target. <laughs> Absolutely. So a couple of things. So one is, Honor their autonomy, meaning if they want space, give them space, right? Of course, like there's uh, every, every situation is different, and, you know, there's sometimes when it's not appropriate to give a, a teenager space. And I would say that we, we default to that too much. Like there's lots of places and times where it's perfectly natural and it would actually be preferable to say, you know what, honey, like I would love to spend some time with you, and I realize that now is not a good time. So in the next day or two, if you could find five or ten minutes to hang out with me, that would be really great. And then you give them the choice. You give them the freedom to choose when they want to hang out or talk to you or spend time with you. And it doesn't feel like you're constantly like, you know, how, how are you doing? Tell me this. What about that? It doesn't feel like they're being interrogated. You give them the option to say, you know what, I want to connect and I'll let you pick the time and place and let me know when is a good time for you. So that's a way to actually let them be a little bit more in charge. And I found it to be sort of revolutionary when I sort of took that stance with my son and it freed him up to feel like he could call the shots a little bit instead of always feeling like I was the one directing when we were going to have some big mother-son conversation. <laughs> I mean, isn't the fear, though, from a parental standpoint, that if I give them that kind of autonomy, they're not going to talk to me. They're going to you know, pretty much disappear either literally or emotionally um, and because it seems like parents, you, you, it's your nature to want to try to hold on desperately mm, to something yeah. that's slipping away. Uh, and so there's a kind of a fear to give them that kind of autonomy. Absolutely. And it's, you know, again, it's another one of those catch-22s. It's that sort of old adage of if you if you really want something, you have to set it free. <laughs> and the same, is, the same is true in conversations with our kids. Like if we really want to talk to them, we can't 
badger them into it because that's just going to cause them to resist and and dig their heels in and bury themselves deeper in their headphones or their video games or wherever they disappear to. And so it's it does seem counterintuitive, and yet it really does seem to work that if we say, you know what, here's some blocks of time I'm available, and if you've got some time then also would be great to sit down or go for a walk or, you know, whatever it is you want to do to them. And it's it's amazing how giving them that level of independence and responsibility, they rise to the occasion. I mean, mm-hmm. of course, you know, there are times when they don't, and you may not talk to them for three days, and and at some level, like, we need to be okay with that and just know that, okay, they're not in a space to talk. And then um, the more you – the more we can practice these moments of letting go a little bit and allowing them to come to us – it completely turns the tide. It helps them to realize that they're not uh, they're not being held hostage to our <laughs> our desire to control them. That they can have some autonomy in their own in their own way. Well, and as as they come to us and we begin having these conversations, we're going to hear some things we don't like. Um, yeah. And as parents, it might be natural to slip back into parent mode and say, because I'm the mom, that's why, and, and slip into all those things. So when you're having difficult conversations with your teenager and you're hearing things that are very honest from them but are very uncomfortable to hear, how as a mm. parent should we deal with those things? Mm. Beautiful question. So this is where the empathy really is a powerful um, skill to have and a powerful move to make in the conversation. So, you know, I, as an example, I have been doing this work, this communication work for almost 30 years, and my son is 25. And just recently, just within the last month, he sh- he shared with me that he doesn't think I'm a good listener. And for <laughs> me, <laughs> oh my goodness, I, there, I don't think there's anything he could have said that would have cut to the core more for me. And Thank goodness I do have some skills because I said, you know what, honey? Uh, and then, so he went on to say, I asked him some questions. I said, so can you give me some examples of when you have felt like I haven't really listened to you? And he did. He had some very specific examples. And I, I said, I, I really get how in those circumstances it felt like I wasn't paying attention. I didn't honor what you were asking me to do. I didn't really listen to what you were saying. And then I said, and what else would you like me to know? And so empathy is really sort of, sort of three separate skills. It's inquiring. So asking the question of something like, what else is important to you about this? Or what else would you like me to know? Or is there anything else in there that you really want to say? Because I'm willing to listen right now. So any kind of really genuine inquiry is part of the empathy equation. Then summarizing or paraphrasing back. So with my son in that conversation, I said, so it sounds like when you are giving me a request or you want me to do something and you feel like I'm just waiting for my turn to talk and trying to solve a problem, it's in those times when you feel like I'm really most not listening. And he said, yeah, that's right. So summarizing back or paraphrasing is a really important tool of demonstrating understanding and then the third part of empathy is naming the feeling. So one of the reasons that people get upset is because they feel unheard. They feel like, oh, my gosh, like my mom is not listening or my child is not listening. Somebody's not listening to me. And when we can say, you know, 
it sounds like you're really frustrated or it sounds like you're really disappointed in me. Then it allows something inside of that person to go, oh, finally, she got it. She heard me. So actually naming the feeling. It sounds like you're sad or it sounds like you're really pissed off at me. Like that, that is really important because it lets the person know that you are – you're there, you're tracking, you're paying attention, you're not lost in your own world, you're really doing your best to understand what they're saying. And the good news is if you're wrong, if you say, you know what, honey, it sounds like you're really sad, they'll say, no, mom, I'm not sad, I'm, I'm really mad at you. Like, then you get new information, it's like, that's, mm-hmm. and that's okay. And then, so those three things taken together, sort of inquiring, naming the feeling, and paraphrasing back to them, if you can do those things in the conversation with your teenager, with anyone really, then it it softens the hard edges because they realize that you're not trying to fix it. You're not trying to make them wrong for anything. You're not blaming them for giving you feedback. You're not trying to minimize or avoid what they're saying. You're really taking seriously what they're sharing with you. And it allows them to feel accepted and respected in the conversation. And that's what builds trust. You know, this, this skill of empathy is really what heals relationships and builds relationships and, and begins to build trust in our connections. Um, again, not with just our kids, but with everybody. Yeah. Now, now what about those conversations which are really highly charged? And we've all had that situation where we want to resolve it and the other person is very, very angry. They just want to vent. They want to, they don't necessarily want to resolve it. They want to all out fight. So yeah. when you're in that situation, how can you de-escalate that? Because you have two yeah. different intentions and goals uh, from two different people. Yeah, you bet. So it, it, it's those kinds of situations where I would, I would separate sort of teenagers from everybody else because as we all know, you know, the teenage brain is not completely cooked yet (laughs) there's some elements of the prefrontal cortex which is the executive functioning of the brain which is not fully developed until an adolescent is 21 and in boys often it's it's as late as 22 years old and so the the reasoning functioning filtering part of the brain is just not there it's still a little foggy and fuzzy in the teenage brain. So when is it, so that's why I separate it from teenagers from yeah, adults. Yeah, that makes sense. So with, yeah, with teenagers, you know, when they are really upset, it, again, there's sort of several different things you could do. Again, empathy often is a really helpful tool, and sometimes they're beyond the point of being empathized with. And so, you know, many times when my son was really upset in those you know, teenage moments, I would just say, wow, this sounds like it's really, like, this is a really hard moment, isn't it? I'm like, yeah, you're darn right it is. And then I would say, all right, so what's the best thing for us to do right now? And and he might say, well, I just want to yell at you. I'm like, okay, all right, well, you got four more minutes. Let me set the timer and yell to your heart's content for four more minutes, and then we'll we'll call it quits for now. Like, it's okay to put a time limit on it because – you know, again, that adolescent brain, like they're just, they could just vent all day and get really right. sullen and go sulk and all of that. But let, again, like when it's appropriate, give them some autonomy. Say, you know what, I, like this is not so easy for me to sit here and let you yell at me. And I realize that you're really upset. And so, like, you tell me what's, 
what would work best for you right now? Like, do you want to just walk away? Do you want to keep yelling at me? Do you want to sit down and talk about this? Do you want to, like, what do you want to do? So by, and this, this is, I want to be clear, like, we're not problem solving at this moment because whatever they're upset about, when, when someone is so triggered and they're in that sort of middle amygdala part of their brain, they actually cannot access the problem solving. So when your child is super upset, do not try to problem solve. That would sort of escalate it because they, they're not capable of problem solving. And so when I say, you know, ask them what they want to do, what I'm meaning is in that moment, like in that moment of upset, mm -hmm. a really helpful thing to do is say, say, okay, so, you know, we have some different options. We can take a break. We can duke it out. We can go our separate ways. We can come back and talk about this later today. We can talk about it tomorrow. Like, what's, what's going to work for you right now, honey? Because I don't really know what, you, what would be best for me. You know, how, how, what, what, what do you want right now? And so then it kind of helps them. It's like, oh, well, I just, I'm just really mad at you. Like, okay, well, do you want to talk about that or do you want to just keep being mad? So, again, like you're just kind of helping to tease apart the upset. It may not de-escalate it, but, again, if you can give them some choice, because most of the time when our child is upset, what we want to do is contain it. We want to get them to simmer down. And so sometimes we use those horrible two words we say, calm down, which if I can, <laughs> if I can put out into the airwaves right now to all parents everywhere on the planet, do not say calm down to your child or your spouse. Because essentially, what, essentially what that's doing is we're saying don't have the feelings that you're having. And all that does is to the other person, they're like, do not tell me how to feel. Don't take my feelings away from me. It's, it's a really disrespectful move to make. And so don't say, those are two words we would advise not saying. So what we want to do, though, is just really to, again, kind of tease apart what's, what's at the heart of this upset. And, again, they may be too upset to actually say it. But the more you can say, you know what, I really get that you're upset. I want to be helpful. I'm not really sure what the best use of our time together is right now. So if you can just give me a little direction, then I'll know what to do. And so it's, again, it's counterintuitive because as you said, you know, as parents, we want to, we want to contain, we want to make things better. We, it's hard for us to see our child being so upset for whatever the reason is. And, and the more we can let go of that need to sort of contain them and just give them the full experience of their emotions and not try to take it away, not try to minimize it, not try to make it better, not try to give them advice. Just let them have their experience. Believe it or not, it runs its course much faster than when if we try to box it in because as soon as we start to try to control it or give them advice or problem solve, all that does is light the fuse even more. It causes them to resist in even bigger ways. And so, you know, an Aikido move to make, in Aikido, the Aikido master just lets the student sort of come at them and then go right by. And we use the same analogy in conversations. You want, you want to create situations where there's no resistance rather than to create situations where there is lots of resistance. So if your child is resisting you, don't resist back. Like just say, you know what? I love you. I care about you. It's hard for me to see you in so much distress. What's the best way for me to be with you right now? 
and then you're creating a field of non-resistance. And then almost miraculously, they have nothing to push against, and so part of their steam kind of diffuses. Um, so those are some things that uh, I think work really well when your teenager is sort of off the wall. <laughs> that is terrific. And, yeah. you know, there's no doubt listening to you, and I'm sure everyone listening to this realizes we can all improve on the way we're communicating with one another. <laughs> so where can we go yeah. to get better? How, how do we get better at this? Where, what are the resources we can find to improve our communication skills? Yeah, that's great. So there's a couple of really terrific books out there that I would recommend. Um, there's one called Difficult Conversations. It's written by three authors, um, Doug Stone, Bruce Patton, and Sheila Heen, and it's readily available. You can buy it on Amazon for like 10 bucks. Um, and it has a lot of the ideas in there that I've been talking about today and with lots of great examples and how to do this and how to do that. And so it's, it's a really helpful, helpful book. Um, the other book that I would recommend is one called Thanks for the Feedback. And it's from the perspective of receiving feedback, which is very different. There's a lot of information out in the world on how to give feedback. But what we have discovered is that, you know what, it's actually really hard to receive feedback because often we don't know what to make of what this person is trying to tell us. Either it doesn't make sense or we disagree with it. And so that's another book, um, again, for to read with coworkers or family members in mind about what are some things that we can be thinking about in terms of giving and receiving feedback. So those are a couple books I would highly recommend. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Michelle, you have given us so much to think about and a lot to talk <laughs> about. Uh, and so I appreciate you taking your time with us today. Absolutely. For more information on the 90 Days to a Happier You, you can check out the latest issue of Live Happy Magazine. It is on newsstands now, as well as the digital edition, which is available to you in the Apple App Store and on the Google Play Store. If there's anything you'd like to add to the discussion, feel free to do so. Reach out to us on Twitter at LiveHappy, Facebook.com slash LiveHappy, or on Instagram by searching My Live Happy. You can also send us an email, podcast at LiveHappy.com. For everyone at the Live Happy Now podcast, I'm J.R. Houston saying so long, and remember to always live happy.